Our scripture reading today is from Apostle Paul's letter to the Roman Church, uh, Book of Romans, chapter 11, 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, good morning to everyone. And for those of you who are here for the first time, I do see a few new faces. My name is Z. I'm the lead pastor here at One Covenant Church. If I haven't had a chance to get to know you, we'd love to talk to you after the service. We are concluding our sermon series on the book of Romans, chapter 9 to 11. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we see God's help to understand his word this morning? Father, we thank you that this is your word. And as we open your word and discover wonderful truths from your word, we pray that it would drive us to the very face of Jesus this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My friends, we've been covering the book of Romans, and this year, actually, we've been doing some pretty heavy theological lifting. We have done the book of Leviticus. How many of you remember the book of Leviticus? A few of you still breathing? Good. Uh, how many of you remember Romans 9 to 11 that we've been covering over the last couple of weeks? Okay, great. Well, right now, we're going to draw to a close Romans 9 to 11, and these are the last three verses of Romans 11. And what I want to do this morning is not just unpack these verses, which is what we will do, but also kind of give an overview of the book of Romans to help you see where everything fits together, and hopefully that will help us uh, appreciate all the heavy lifting that we've been doing. Do you feel stronger already after all of that heavy lifting, friends? You should, okay? It's all right, okay? Now, Romans, the book of Romans, broadly speaking, can be broken into two parts. Romans 1 to 11, some people call that the theological section. And Romans 1 to 11, as we have covered over the last two years, gives us some of the most profound things about God that we will ever learn in all the Bible. Some of the deepest truths about God are found in Romans 1 to 11. Now, from Romans 12 to 16, things get a lot more practical. Some people call that the practical section of the book of Romans. It gets so practical that Paul talks about how we relate to governing authorities, how we greet one another, and how we love one another as followers of Jesus Christ. So you have the theological section, Romans 1 to 11, and the practical section, chapters 12 to 16. You have teaching and you have living. You have analysis and argumentation and you have action. But interestingly, Sandwiched right between Romans 1 to 11 and Romans 12 to 16 is Romans 11, 33 to 36. And as Lawrence read so well for us today, Romans 11, 33 to 36 is a song or a hymn of praise, which means that after 11 chapters of heavy theological lifting, this does not leave Paul in a place of self-satisfied smugness. It leaves him in a place of, oh, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. That word, oh, in the original language is the word, oh. It's the same word. <laughs> it's an emotional, visceral exclamation 
of awe and wonder at who God is and all that he has done. That 11 chapters of theological heavy lifting has left him here in a state of praise and adoration as he beholds the glory of God in worship and in praise. Friends, this teaches us a very important thing about the Christian life. You see, friends, the Christian life is not just about moving from profound theology to practical living. There is a step before practical living, and that's a step of praise. Christian theology does not move from a place of believing certain truths about God and then just behaving in a certain way. We must cross the bridge, and that's the bridge of beholding the glory of God. The Christian life does not move from analysis and argumentation to action. The Christian life moves on from analysis to argumentation to adoration before it moves us to action. And this is a very important step, the step of praise. This is essential to the normal Christian life. Why, friends? Well, friends, uh, a story was told, I'm not sure whether it's true or not, but it's been recorded in different places, that there was a British conference on comparative religions, and experts from around the world were debating the uniqueness of the Christian faith. And the method they applied was by eliminating possibilities. So these experts were talking, and they said, perhaps it's the incarnation, God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what made Christianity unique. But as they discussed, they realized that there were other religions who had different versions of God's appearing in human form. Some said it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only did he die, but he rose from the dead. Again, other religions had accounts of return from death. Now, the debate went on for some time. It got pretty heated. But story is told that C.S. Lewis, the great British scholar, steps into the room and he asks, what's this rumpus, what's this com commotion all about? And when he heard what they were discussing, he said, that's easy. What makes Christianity unique and different from all other religions and all other systems in the world is grace. They thought about it, they debated it a bit further, and they had to agree. You see, friends, the notion that God's love, God's commendation, God's approval of us comes to us free of charge, no strings attached. It goes against every other system of belief on earth, whether religious or irreligious. No other religion on earth and no other system on earth offers us God's approval as a free gift. Only Christianity dares to make God's love and grace unconditional. And yet at the same time, friends, if you read the Bible, you will know that right behavior does matter to God. Ethics on morality are not insignificant. We should live according to God's word. We should live rightly. We should obey God. But the question is, friends, where is the place of obedience in a religion of grace? And simply put, we obey because we want to. We obey because grace has so melted our hearts that we live rightly, not in order to gain God's approval, but because we have God's approval. Romans 6, 17 says we become obedient, not just obedient, but obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching that has been delivered to us. And that's what makes Christianity unique. We obey because we want to. 
We obey because our hearts have been melted by grace and by the love of God. And the way God melts our hearts, it's true. Praise. It's when we come and we bring all that we've learned about God, all of that analysis, all of that argumentation, and we adore Him and we behold His glory. Then and only then is it safe for us to behave in the way that He wants us and to take action in this world. So friends, we're going to cover Romans 11, 33 to 36 under three headings. The basis for praise, the blessing of praise, and the better way to praise. The basis for praise, the blessing of praise, and the better way to praise. Come with me to verse 33. Let me read it again. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Now, friends, as with much of the book of Romans, there is a dispute about how even this first part of the book of Romans, uh, uh, verse 33, should be taken. You see, friends, the dispute is whether or not riches here is an adjective describing something or it's an attribute of God that Paul is praising God for. That's one dispute. And the second dispute is whether wisdom and knowledge are two separate attributes of God or simply two ways of speaking about the same attribute of God, what he thinks. So friends, there are at least four ways that you can take this passage. If you take it that riches is an attribute of God, then what Paul is praising God for, look at verse 33, is the deep riches, wisdom, and knowledge of God. So three attributes. God is rich and generous. God is wise and God is knowledgeable. And all of that is so deep that he praises God. So that's one way of taking it. Now friends, if you take rich, not as an attribute, but as an adjective, a describing word, then you'll read it this way. And you take wisdom and knowledge as two separate attributes. He's praising God for the deep and rich wisdom and knowledge of God. So he's praising God for his deep and rich wisdom, and he's praising God for his deep and rich knowledge. Now, friends, if you take riches as an attribute and wisdom and knowledge as one attribute, then Paul is praising God for two attributes of God, his deep riches, his generosity on the one hand, and his deep wisdom slash knowledge on the other hand, what God does and what God thinks. Our friends, the fourth choice, if you take deep and rich, rich again as an adjective and wisdom and knowledge as just one attribute of God, then he's only praising God for one attribute, the deep and rich wisdom slash knowledge of God. So what is Paul praising God for? His riches, wisdom, and knowledge, or his wisdom and knowledge, or his riches, wisdom slash knowledge, or just his wisdom slash knowledge? Have I lost everyone now? Sorry, I, I just had to do this, okay? Just to help tell you that this is actually really exciting, okay? Uh, one key to reading the Bible well is to read the verse in context of the passage. And I think if you read the verse in context of the passage, you would see that Paul is praising God for the depths of his riches on the one hand and wisdom and knowledge on the other hand. Two attributes, what God does, he's rich and generous in his ways, and what God thinks, his wisdom and knowledge. Now, why do I say that? Well, if you go and look at the second part of verse 33, do you realize that Paul highlights again two aspects of God's attributes? He says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He highlights God's judgments and God's ways. God's judgments, the way he thinks and decides on things. I think that's a parallel to the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
and then God's ways, how he behaves in this world. And I think that's a parallel to the riches of God. How does he behave to us, oh friends? He is generous. He is wealthy and generous to us. His judgments and ways map on or are parallel to wisdom and knowledge and the riches that we find in the first part of verse 33. And then we go to verse 34 and 35 and look at what Paul highlights again. Again, two things. Verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord. What God thinks in his wisdom and knowledge. And in verse 35, who has given him a gift. What God does is generosity and riches. And so if you go back to verse 33, in context, Paul is praising God for the depths, for the unplumbable depths of his riches on the one hand and his wisdom and knowledge on the other, for the wealth of God and the wisdom of God, for the generosity of God and for the wisdom of God, for all that God gives us and does in this world and all that he thinks. Paul is praising God for his wisdom and his generosity. But the question is, friends, how does Paul arrive at this place? It wasn't overnight. He's taken 11 chapters to arrive at the wisdom and generosity of God. And because, friends, this is our last sermon in our Romans 9 to 11 series, I want to give us a rundown on Romans 1 to 11 to show us how all that we have been lifting over the last two years brings us to this place of, oh, are you ready for that? Let's go back to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1.18, it's where Paul starts describing his message. He calls it the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, Paul says, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, whether Jew or Greek. Why? Well, Paul tells us because in the gospel, God gives a righteousness, a right standing with him that does not come by what we do, but by faith, by believing in Jesus Christ. Do you see, friends, the generosity of wisdom of God in this system that he has put together? It is like no other system in the world. Then in Romans 1 to 3, he shows us why we need this gospel. Whether you're a Jew or a Greek, Romans 1.23, all of us have exchanged God for something else. The Bible calls this idolatry. There is a religious idolatry where we exchange God for our own morality and trying to earn his approval through the things that we do. That's what the Jews did. But there is also a religious idolatry where we ignore God and his ways. Both of these things make us, Romans 3.23, sinners who fall short of the glory of God. Whether you're a Jew or a Greek, whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you're moral or immoral, everyone has fallen short of the glory of God and deserve his wrath. But in his kindness, Romans 3.24 tells us both Jews and Greeks can be justified or declared righteous by God's grace through the gift of Jesus Christ. Not by earning salvation, but by receiving it as a gift through Jesus Christ. And what does that do? Romans 3.26 says it makes God both just on the one hand and the justifier of the one who is faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see, friends, the wisdom and generosity of God? In Romans 4-5, through the lives of Abraham, Moses, and Adam, Paul shows that this has been the message of salvation all along. 
even for the Jews. There isn't one message of salvation for the Jews and another one for the Gentiles. It is one message of salvation for the whole world that has come through the Jewish people. Do you see, friends, the wisdom and generosity of God? In Romans chapter 6, we see God's generosity. He tells us in Romans chapter 6 that when you believe in Jesus Christ, not only has he justified you, not only has he declared you righteous, he takes you and he unites you with his son Jesus Christ in some mystical way. The union is so intimate and full that his death becomes your death and his resurrection life becomes your resurrection life. And Paul says that is your only hope in ever fighting sin. In Romans 7, he gets very real. Even for the Christian, the most serious Christian, the struggle with sin is very real. And he shows us in Romans 7 that although the law of God is good, Romans 7, 12, it cannot save us. It cannot make us holy. No, the law is meant, us to, meant to point us to Jesus Christ over and over and over again. In Romans 8, we discover his generosity again because he tells us in Romans 8 that those who have Christ also have the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So when you believe in Jesus Christ, not only are you declared righteous, you're justified, you're united with Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. God's own Spirit lives in us. God's own Spirit takes residence in your heart. And this Spirit helps us know that we are children of God, Romans 8.15. And this same Spirit helps us in our weakness, Romans 8.26. We're so weak that sometimes we're not even sure how to pray. And God's Holy Spirit, Romans 8.26, helps us in our prayer. Do you see the wisdom and generosity of God? And then at the end of Romans 8, Paul says that in God in his wisdom and generosity is working everything out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you see his wisdom and generosity? Finally, we arrive at Romans 9 to 11, the section that we have been looking at over the last few weeks. And here, Paul needs to address the issue of why so many Jewish people reject the gospel. You see, in Romans 4 and 5, we're told the message of the gospel comes through the Jewish people. And yet in Paul's day and even in our day, the majority of Jewish people do not receive the gospel. They reject Jesus Christ. So how can God continue to be faithful and merciful if the majority of the people that receive this promise have rejected Jesus? His answer comes in three parts. In Romans 9, it's because of God's sovereign choice. There is an Israel within Israel. Not all who are ethnic Israel are truly Israel, but those that God has chosen. In Romans 10, he tells us it's because of their own choice. They have tried to establish a righteousness of their own apart from Jesus Christ. But praise God, in Romans 11, we learn that in spite of the rejection, God is not done with the Jewish people yet. We're given an insight into the way that God has been working in history. We're told that the Jewish people were consigned to disobedience so that the Gentiles might be brought to obedience. And the Gentiles, in their obedience, arouses Israel to jealousy so that many of them would become 
obedient. God is not done with the Jewish people. Romans 11 to 29 says his gifts and callings are irrevocable. And so you and I, friends, can trust that he is indeed faithful and merciful. Do you see, friends, the wisdom and generosity of God that leads to praise? These 11 chapters of deep theology do not lead Paul to smugness and self-satisfaction and a head full of knowledge. It leads him to awe and wonder, beholding the glory of God in praise. Romans 1 to 11 prepares us for a praise party where we come with minds full and hearts lifted to worship God, praise is what takes what's theoretical in our mind and makes it burn and alive in our hearts. So friends, Paul is praising God for the things that he knows about God. But friends, more than that, Paul is praising God for the things that he knows that he doesn't know about God. Now, when I went to seminary, I had the idea that once I go to seminary, I'll come out really confident. I'll learn all about the languages. I'll be confident in the Bible. I'll be confident in theology. I'll be able to be a better minister. I did come out more confident. There are many things I learned. But here's the greatest gift that seminary gave me. It helped me know the things I didn't know. You see, friends, if you don't know the things you don't know, your world is very small. But if you start to know more things, you start to know the things that you don't know. And when you don't know the things that you, when you know the things that you don't know, your world becomes very big. And it makes you curious. It makes you humble. It makes you want to search out all that you do not know. And it's what you know that makes you know what you do not know so that you can search to find out what you do not know and know what you do not know. You know what I'm saying? That's what's happening here, friends. Yes, Paul knows something of who God is. He's all wise and he's all generous. And he's taken 11 chapters of the book of Romans to get us there. There's much that he knows about God. But what he knows about God leaves open so much more that he doesn't know. Look at how he describes the attributes of God. Verse 33, it's deep. The picture there is of an ocean so deep that you can never get to the bottom of it. How does he talk about God's judgments? They are unsearchable. You cannot fully arrive at God's judgments. Friends, if you're sitting here and you're bored because you think you know, you don't know. Secondly, his ways are inscrutable or beyond comprehension. You see, friends, Sometimes when we sit in smugness, it's not because we know too much. It's actually because our world is really small. Uh, that kind of pierces some hearts here. But I need to say that. Sometimes when we think we know, it's because our world is really small. And friends, face it. If God could be fully understood, he would be so predictable that he wouldn't be worthy of praise. And so, friends, theology is meant to lead us to doxology and praise, not just for the things that we can know and do know about God, but what we yet do not know and what we cannot know because God is far bigger than our comprehension and our judgments. And that's what evokes praise in Paul. 
what he knows about God. He's wise and he's generous, but also what he doesn't know about God. And friends, when you come with this posture, it gives you confidence, but it also makes you humble and really curious because you and I, none of us, have got it all pat down. We don't have all the answers to all the questions, although we have the answers to many questions. And that's what evokes praise, friends. If you're in a point in your Christian life where you think, I've learned enough because I spent three years in some kind of a varsity group, I've learned enough and I'm confident and that's all I need, you have no idea what you're talking about, friends. There's so much more to learn about God because God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. That's from the Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter Catechism. Secondly, the blessing of praise. Let's look at verses 11, 34 to 35. In verse 34, Paul quotes from the Old Testament. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, and he does this often in the book of Romans to show us that he's not bringing something new. He's going back to the Old Testament scriptures to show us that this is true. It's Isaiah 40, verse 13. Isaiah, the prophet at that point in time, marvels at God's profound plan to bring his people back from exile by manipulating the nations and the interests of the nations. He's saying that God's plans are wiser than our plans, and it's completely impossible for our plans to ever be wiser than God's. It's impossible for any human being to be God's counselor a God's consultant. It's impossible for any of us to be able to come to God and say, actually, God, I know you've designed things this way, uh, but I have a better plan. Let me write a report for you. It's going to come in three points, McKinsey style, and you will see why my, I have a better plan. Impossible. Right here, it says no one can be God's counselor. No one can be God's consultant. He is all wise. We can never offer God a better way. Secondly, no one can be more generous than God. Verse 35, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? That's from Job 41, 11. You see, faced with the awesome creature Leviathan, the evil and powerful and mighty creature Leviathan, Job reminds himself that God is greater still. Job reminds himself that this evil and vicious creature receives all of its power and all of its ability from God. He's saying that nothing in all creation can ever come to God, even Leviathan, and say to God, you owe me. You are beholden to me. No, friends, God is more generous than we can ever be. We owe everything to him. He owes us nothing. In praise, the wisdom and generosity of God becomes real to our hearts. Friends, do you really believe that God is all wise and that you cannot be his consultant? And do you really believe that he's all generous and that we are all beholden to him and that he owes us Nothing? On a good Sunday, you may be able to say that. But the lives we live and the stories we tell ourselves and others, myself included, reveal a different heart. When we complain about life and how it's turned out, 
and how we have to press through difficult things. Are we not saying to God, God, actually, uh, I have a better way. Or when we complain about the things that He has given us or the things that He has withheld from us, are we not saying to God, you're miserly, God. You withheld that from me. Are you familiar with the series Friends? Anyone here? Friends? A couple of you in your 40s, 30s, oh, 20s as well. Okay. So what I heard, uh, Matthew Perry died recently. That's very sad. I used to watch this series in my 20s, and I hear that those in their 20s are watching it now in reruns. And I think this theme of, you know, having a group of friends, working through life, it, it kind of uh, resonates with people of different ages. But I think that's also because my generation had the best shows. Can I hear any amen to anyone? There? Okay. Do you remember the theme song of Friends? Anyone? The theme song? Those in their 40s, help me out, please. Yes, I'll be there for you. Okay, and there's a line in that song that goes something like this. No one told you life was going to be this way. Your job's a joke. You're broke. And your love life is DOA. Now, DOA, I had to look it up. It's dead on arrival. It's like you're always stuck in second gear. That's when they were still driving stick shifts. Okay? When it hasn't been your day, your week, your month, or even your year. And I think that many of us get to a point in our lives where we feel like that, don't we? We feel a deep sense of regret. Now, it's not just those in midlife. I've read some literature that says even those early on, like in quarter life, have this quarter life crisis. Any nods here? Yeah? Where you begin to regret the things you've done. But you wonder, like, oh, why is my life like this? You know? What if I had made different choices or better choices when I was younger? You think about the one who got away or the chance that you didn't take or, or, or all the different things that you could have done and could have been but didn't. And you're stuck now with this life. And suddenly despair sets in too because when you think about it, you can't really go back in time to change anything. And if you were to change anything now, you know that the results will be even more disastrous if you did. Well, friends, here's the blessing of praise. In praise, you come to see and know, not just, just know, but, but sense on your heart that God is truly wise, wiser than you'll ever be, and God is truly more generous and more in control of your life than you will ever be. And friends, I know some of you have gone through very difficult things in life. And I don't want to take anything away from that. But the truth of what we learn here helps us see that the life that you have right now is the life that God has chosen for you. And it really is the best of all possible worlds. There is no other multiverse where you live a fuller, more satisfied life. God is all wise and all generous. And the life you have right now is the life he has chosen for you. Friends, let me put it this way. If you knew everything that God knows, if you were as wise as he is and as generous as he is, 
you would have chosen exactly the life that you have right now. You would have given yourself the things that you have right now, the good and the bad, and you would have withheld from yourself the things that you do not have. You know, friends, when you watch some of these uh, time travel movies, uh, there's this narrative arc, isn't it? You know, I'll go back in time, I'll change a horrible incident, and then I'll go back into the present. But what often happens when you change that negative incident is that the timeline unravels, and that negative thing led to many good things that no longer exist in your present timeline. Friends, in worship, we come face to face with a God who is all wise and all knowledgeable and all generous. You know what that does for you, friends? This is the second Sunday of Advent. And the second Sunday of Advent celebrates both the first and second coming of Jesus Christ as the prince who brings peace. When you come face to face and you acknowledge, God, I cannot be your counselor and I cannot be wiser than you, in worship and place, you receive the blessing of being able to rest. Your soul, your heart, your life, your longings in the kindness and love and sovereignty of God. And that frees you, friends, to look forward with joy. That gives you the confidence that your days ahead are better still. That frees you to make choices according to his will because he loves you. That frees you to see that what is ahead is a life of service to him. And when it ends, it's glory. Friends, that is the blessing of praise. When the wisdom and generosity of God becomes real to your heart, it makes sense of your life and your future. Finally, let's look at the better way of praise. Look at verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Do you see the logic of this passage? Paul praises God for the depths of his riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He proclaims how unsearchable they are. He says we cannot be his counselor. We cannot outgive him. And then he anchors all of this in who God is and what he does with all things. This is the story of God. This is how God relates to all things. Everything in all of the world comes from him, verse 36. Everything in all the world is through him. It's being sustained by him. And everything in all of the world is to him. It's for his glory. It's to show the world how great God is. And because of this, he's all wise and all knowledgeable, and I can rest in that wisdom and in that generosity. Now, a bit of self-indulgence here. Uh, 16 years ago, I married Cindy. And this was the passage we actually chose for our wedding. Uh, the pastor at that time told me, hey, Ziwa, you choose Romans 11, 33 to 36. Very difficult. So he, I said, don't worry, pastor, just, just focus on Romans 11, 36. And he preached a beautiful wedding sermon that I remember to today. You, know, you, want, you want to know what he said to us? Okay. At least one person say yes, please. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he said, Z, from this passage, God is the source, and God is the sustainer, and God is the significance of your marriage. Your marriage is from him, 
Your marriage is through him, and your marriage is to him. He's the one that brought you both together. He's the one that will keep you together. And But don't forget, he's the one that both of you live for. This marriage is not just about both of you finding companionship. This marriage is about his glory. This marriage is not just for both of you. This marriage is for him. And friends, this is not just true about marriage and relationships. This is true of all things in your life and in my life. He's the source of everything. Everything that's good and even bad that's in your life, it's from him. He's the sustainer of all things. It's through him that your entire life, everything holds together. And finally, friends, it's to him and for his glory that you are alive and you have the life you live. Friends, this is the story of God. All things come from him. All things are through him and all things are to him. You see, friends, each of us has a story. That's your life. There's a plot to your story. There are characters, there are heroes, there are villains. There's a narrative arc. Every single one of us has a story. And when we meet someone else and we get into a significant relationship, it's the merging of two stories. But friends, here's the thing. In our selfishness, a lot of times when we meet someone else, and even if it's a significant person, what we want is for that person to become a part of our story. We're less keen to become a part of their story. Let me, let me unpack what I mean here. We usually come with the attitude of, I have certain goals and plans and desires and longings in life, and you, when you come and become a part of my story, you're there to help me achieve those goals, fulfill my heart, and meet those longings. So you become a part of my story, and that's how I'm fulfilled and how I'm joyful. We don't really like to become a part of another person's story to meet their goals and meet their longings and meet their life. Well, friends, we bring that same attitude to God in worship. We have certain plans in our lives, certain goals, certain directions, certain longings, and we come to God and we say, God, this is my story. You come and be a part of my story, and you fulfill me. You help me meet my goals. That's how I'll worship you. That's how I praise you. We come to a church, we hear a certain message, we like it, okay, fine, yes. But then when we hear something we don't like, oh, okay, God, um, I'm going to choose a different God then. So what you're doing there is you're bringing your story, and you say, God, you become a part of my story and fulfill my goals and my longings, and then this is how it's going to work. Well, friends, the Bible says it's going to have to be the other way around. Because God's story is the bigger, more glorious story. Everything comes from him, it's through him, and it's to him. Verse 33, it's to him that glory belongs forever. And so what God is doing in worship, Michael Horton tells us, is that he is inviting us into the drama of his redemption. He's inviting us to find our place in his story to accomplish his purposes and his goals, not the other way around. And the beauty of what the Word of God tells us is that this actually fulfills us and gives us greater joy than getting God to come and bless our puny little goals. Why? You have to 
put on your thinking caps a bit here, okay? The great philosopher and theologian Jonathan Edwards, he tells us this. When God seeks to show his glory, he is also seeking our greatest joy. Now, why is that? Okay, follow along with me, okay? If God is truly good, and God's highest aim is to pursue his glory, is to show his glory, then his glory must be the highest possible good. Let me say that again, okay? If God is truly good, and his highest aim is to pursue his glory, then his glory must be the highest possible good. And so, friends, when you align your life to his glory, you're aligning yourself to the highest possible good in the universe. There is nothing better that exists. And when you align yourself to the highest possible good, the glory of God, that's where you get your greatest possible fulfillment and joy. Friends, some of you have been looking here and there and everywhere for fulfillment, for connection, for joy, and you're tired. I'm tired, friends. But friends, God offers us a better way. That joy and fulfillment and love is not found in God meeting us to fulfill our goals, but us taking God at his word and joining him in his bigger, greater, more glorious story. Psalm 105 verse 3 says, Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. And friends, that is the better way of praise. Not asking God to come and be part of my story to fulfill my goals, but to accept the invitation of God to become a part of his story. And you can do that simply by believing in Jesus Christ. Friends, how do we know that this great and grand story is a good story? The bridge of the Friends theme song, anyone know that one? It goes something like this, no one could ever know me, no one could ever see me. Seems like you're the only one who knows what it's like to be me. Friends, in the wisdom and generosity of God, in the season of Christmas, we celebrate a time where God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He became one of us. And so he knows what it's like to be you, to be me. And in his life, and ultimately in his death, he shows us a God who really does know us, who really does see us, who really does love us, and who really does forgive us in spite of all that we've done. Friends, do you see the wisdom and generosity of God that in the gory death of his son, he shows the infinite glory of his wisdom and generosity and grace. So friends, when you come before God in that way, it's true that you cannot know everything about him. But this is what you can know, friends. You can know that he does love you. You can know that he is for you. You can know that he is with you. And you can know 
that in Christ, what awaits you is glory. Let's pray. I think the best thing I can do for us is to read again Romans 11, verse 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.